Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 5 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Poets' Corner, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner In Defense of Christianity. This segment is from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1, Canto 12, Part 2, Episode 39. Podcast 7 is entitled, The Great Dragon is Dead. In last week's episode, the dragon is pronounced dead. After four years, the king and queen are freed from the castle. The king proclaimed joy throughout the kingdom. The trumpets sound. A solemn feast is assembled. The ancient king and queen, dressed in vintage robes, emerged surrounded by a huge entourage of noble souls carrying laurel branches. The Red Cross Knight is honored. Una, a goodly maiden queen, is recognized as the king's daughter. The common people gather to gaze at their hero, the Red Cross Knight, whom they thought was sent from heaven. However, when they saw the huge dragon stretched out dead on the ground, large as a mountain, they were filled with fear, and none dared approach. After all. All the rascal many ran heaped together in rude rabblement to see the face of that victorious man, whom all admired as from heaven sent and gazed upon with gaping wonderment. But when they came where the dead dragon lay stretched on the ground in monstrous large extent, the sight with idle fear did them dismay, ne durst approach him nigh to touch or once essay. The size of the dragon, of course, is a symbol of both Satan's gigantic power and of his enormous influence. Fear is one of Satan's greatest tools. The event is enormous. It was the final battle. The dragon who led the war in heaven, whose tail brought a third part of the host of heaven with him, and the war on earth is dead. It was Michael who led the war against Lucifer in heaven. To understand the battle against Satan, let's turn to the book of Revelation as seen in vision by John on the Isle of Patmos. Let's particularly examine Revelation 12. As Linda reads verses 1 and 2, think about the fall of man. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. As we ponder those two verses, think about the curse placed upon Satan, the curse placed upon Adam, and the curse placed upon Eve. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The curse of Eve is suggested in Revelation 12, too. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. The curse of Satan is that he shall be permitted to tempt the posterity of Adam and Eve. However, he shall not have the power to take human life. To bruise his heel suggests huge limitations on Satan's power. He shall be allowed to cripple man, but not to destroy him. Man, on the other hand, is given the power to crush the serpent's head. Satan is known for his cunning. Cunning is in the head. Therefore, man has the power to outwit Satan and see through his disguises and thwart his attack. To crush his head suggests that man can beat Satan on every level. The curse of Adam is that as Eve brings life into the world at tremendous pain, Adam brings death into the world. The ground is cursed in two ways. One, Adam has to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. That was not so in the Garden of Eden. Two, the ground brings death into the world. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. This is the environment that Satan will operate in. However, Satan will have enormous power as symbolized by his many heads, his many horns, and his many crowns. Heads, horns, and crowns suggest many kings having great power. Horn is a symbol of power, and many kingdoms symbolized by many crowns. Let's return to Revelation 12, verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. Not only will Satan have enormous power among the kingdoms of the earth, but we also learn that a third part of the host of heaven followed Satan, and therefore were sent to earth as angels to the devil. Look at Revelation 12.4. We learn that legions of fallen angels followed Lucifer and they are ready to devour the posterity of Adam and Eve from the time they come to earth. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Those who are born represent the children of God who come through the seed of Adam and Eve. Satan particularly attacks those who follow Christ for Satan is the great Antichrist. Fortunately, Christ shall come through the Virgin Mary. The rod of iron represents the words of Christ. Isaiah said, Isaiah 11.4 But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, 
and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. In Revelation 12:5, John said, And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That man-child, of course, is Christ and the Church of Christ. In Revelation 12:6, we have the symbol of Mary and Joseph taking the child Jesus to Egypt to flee the death threats of Herod. But it also symbolizes the church and how God protects those who follow Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The war against Satan on earth actually began in heaven, as we are told in Revelation 12, 7 through 8. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. The war in heaven was led by Michael. The Red Cross Knight, who becomes St. George after slaying the dragon, symbolizes Michael on earth because the war against Satan continues on earth, as related in Revelation 12.9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Christ said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In Revelation 12.10-11, John reveals exactly how the war was fought in heaven and how the war must be fought on earth. For dramatic effect, war images are used, but mortal weapons in heaven are meaningless and mortal weapons on earth are not supposed to be used as a conversion tool. God approves nothing that takes away agency. It is testimony, not the sword, that wins converts to Christ. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. In Revelation 1.12, we get a vivid image of how desperate Satan is in the final days. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Revelation twelve thirteen shows that Satan targets Christians. It is speaking of the church or those who follow Christ. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. In the concluding verses of Revelation 12, we see how Satan intensifies his war against the followers of Christ. As we saw earlier, Satan targets the church from the beginning. However, there is a kind of hiatus or breathing period. Following that, Satan, who has but a short time, will triple his efforts to destroy the saints of God. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, 
from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Satan specifically targets those who keep the commandments of God, and who have a testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Savior of the world. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even though the dragon is dead, the people remain in disbelief. They are afraid that even in death the dragon still has power. Some feared and fled. Some feared and well it feigned. One that would wiser seem than all the rest warned him not touch, for yet perhaps remained some lingering life within his hollow breast, or in his womb might lurk some hidden nest of many dragonettes his fruitful seed. Another said that in his eyes did rest yet sparkling fire, and bade thereof take heed. Another said he saw him move his eyes indeed. Mothers warn their children not to get near the dragon. They are astonished at how many acres the body of the dead dragon covers. One mother, when her foolhardy child did come too near, and with his talents play, Half dead through fear, her little babe reviled, and to her gossips gan in counsel say, How can I tell, but that his talents may yet scratch my son, or rend his tender hand? So diversely themselves in vain they fray, while some more bold, to measure him nigh stand to prove how many acres he did spread of land. The villagers flock from miles around. Meanwhile, the old king and his followers gather around their champion, the Red Cross Knight. The king honors the conquering knight with gifts of gold and ivory. The king also tenderly embraces his daughter, Una, who was responsible for bringing the Red Cross Knight to fight the dragon and to free her parents, the king and queen of Eden. Thus flocked all the folk him round about. The whiles that hoary king, with all his train being arrived, where the champion stout, after his false defeasance, did remain. Him goodly greets, and fair does entertain with princely gifts of ivory and gold, and thousand thanks him yields for all his pain. Then, when his daughter dear he does behold, her dearly doth embrace and kiss, manifold. The king brings Una and the Red Cross Knight to his palace under the sound of trumpets and singing choirs. The people spread their garments on the ground before him. At the palace they spread the floor with scarlet cloth of tremendous value. They sit on the floor discussing the great event. And after to his palace he then brings with shams and trumpets and with clarions sweet. And all the way the joyous people sings and with their garments strows the paved street. Whence mounting up, they find purveyance meet of all the royal prince's court became, and all the floor was underneath their feet, bespread with costly scarlet of great name, on which they lowly sit, 
and fitting purpose frame. Their feast is great, but not excessive, for in this kingdom they hate pomp and circumstance, suggesting their great humility. What needs me tell their feast and goodly guise, in which was nothing riotous nor vain? What needs of dainty dishes to devise, of comely service or courtly train? My narrow leaves cannot in them contain the large discourse of royal princes' state. Yet was their manner then but bare and plain, for the antique world excess and pride did hate. Such proud, luxurious pomp is swollen up but late. Please join us next week as we continue the celebration. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.